0: Now, the first time I can remember hearing about Scientology was when somebody told me that Tom Cruise, uh, Maverick himself, was a Scientologist. Now, I had no idea what Scientology really was, so I went to the internet to find out more. Now, in 1950, a science fiction writer named L. Ron Hubbard published a book called Dianetics the modern science of mental health and this outlined his new system of psychotherapy but within 4 years what had happened is it kind of gave birth to a movement and the church of scientology had begun and hubbard said scientology is the science of knowing how to know answers and i'm still trying to get my head around what that actually means so if you can explain it to me please do afterwards but uh, Every worldview or every religion has to be able to answer some pretty big questions. There's kind of some essential questions that need to be answered. And one of those questions would be origins. How did all of this begin? And and Scientology has um, an answer for that. Their creation myth goes something like this. There was a being called Xenu. And he was the ruler of a galactic confederacy of ancient planets. There were 76 of them in total. And having existed for 20 million years, the planets were struggling with extreme overpopulation. Now, Zinu, the people weren't happy, so he was afraid he was going to be thrown out of power. So he gathered billions of the, the people um, and they're, they're, to capture their souls. He froze them, their they're thetans. And he transported them to a planet called Tigiak, which is also known as Earth, Um, and he did this to eliminate them. And so he he dumps all these Thetans at the bottom of volcanoes, and through a series of nuclear explosions, he proceeds to destroy them, killing all but a few of the Thetans and sending their souls into the air. Now, once these these souls that survived were in the air, Xenu captured them and implanted into them misleading information, including concepts related to all the world's religions. And after all of this, Zenu was eventually captured for his crimes and he was imprisoned. And Earth, or Tigiak, was left to be a prison planet by the Galactic Confederacy. Now, Scientologists believe that we are the Thetans, those, those kind of souls that have been left here in which Xenu implanted um, that false information. And they believe that we've forgotten our true nature and are trapped on Earth in a human body. Now, this is where the Church of Scientology kind of comes in, is that they offer a series of, of classes and teachings known as auditing by which you can learn some secret knowledge which will help set you free, but it's not done for free. You have to pay thousands upon thousands of dollars to have access to this information. Um, hence why it's popular amongst celebrities. Now, I remember reading this and thinking, seems legit, I'm gonna become a Scientologist. Um, no, I, I read this, as was going, how can anybody believe this is true? Like, it sounds exactly like something that a science fiction writer would come up with. It's a money grab, like it's obviously there. How would anybody believe it? And I, I'm looking at Tom Cruise going like, buddy, like really, like you believe this is true? But then I was thinking about this and I was going, is this how people view me? Is this how people look at Christians and Christianity and kind of go like, how do you believe that? You actually believe it's true. Like, I, I've been up here preaching at times, things that you'll find in Scripture, what the, the, the Bible teaches, and maybe there's somebody here for the first time, they're, they're invited by a friend or a family member, they're just doing them favors, like, yeah, I'll come get, it, get you off my back, and I'll be preaching, and I can tell by their face, it's like, they think I'm crazy. They think I'm a moron, that we're morons maybe for believing some of the stuff. Now, here's what I would say. If, if we kind of just look at what Christianity says on first impression, I can get it. I understand why somebody might feel that way because Christianity makes some bold claims about God and life and how we're to live and about Jesus's miracles and to top it all off, we kind of have this, this one that like, if you don't really think about it, sometimes we just, we're just we just like, oh yeah, it is what it is. But we go, Jesus died. He was in a tomb for three days and then he rose again. And like, for the average person, they're probably going, that, that, that's not my experience. That's, that doesn't seem right. And if we're honest, we can go Christian doctrine can sound a little bit ridiculous at times. Now, if you've been a Christian for more than a few days, um, chances are that you've experienced some doubt in your life in regards to some of our beliefs and Christians, Christianity's claims. Like maybe you've wondered about evil and suffering in the world and how God can be a good God if he allows that to go on. Maybe you've looked at the exclusive claims of Jesus saying that he, he alone is the way of salvation. You're going, I don't, I don't know about that. You maybe wonder how a good God could allow people to go to hell for eternity. Maybe you look at the hypocritical behavior of, of those who claim to follow Christ and you go, I don't, I don't know about that. Doesn't that kind of disprove Christianity. Maybe you've looked at scripture and going like, how can you hinge or like place all your bets in on, on this book? And we, we could keep going with this. Now I've, this July, I'll have been a Christian for about 23 years. And in that time, I will admit, I've had a few bouts with doubt. Um, I've wondered like, am I a fool to kind of go all in on Christianity? Am I a fool to actually believe that this is true? And at some point, I think if you're a Christian long enough, you're going to find yourself kind of alternating between doubt and faith. And so as I said, we're going to be in, in Luke chapter 24, so you can open up there. But what we can sometimes do with, with Jesus' disciples is we, we put them up on a platform And we think of them as as superhuman. And so maybe you kind of think of them like spiritual Avengers or the spiritual Justice League, that they're just like at a level, okay, I'm the only person getting this, like maybe I'm a nerd, I don't know. Um, But they're just like at this level that like we could never hope to attain. But in reality, Scripture does not turn these disciples into like heroes, but it goes like, here's their humanity on full display and where we find ourselves in the text is just after Jesus' tomb has been discovered to be empty. And, and they're going, where's Jesus' body? What, what's happened to it? And then some of the disciples are going, actually, we've seen him. He appeared to us. Two disciples were on the road to Emmaus. Greg talked about this last week. And, and Jesus appears, walks along with them, shares a meal, and then all of a sudden they realize that it's him. And so the disciples are all gathered together in a room behind a locked door going, what is going on? Like, is Jesus alive? Where, where's his body? When all of a sudden... Um, Jesus appears. So Luke chapter 24, verses 36 to 43. It says, as they were saying these things, Jesus himself stood in their midst. He said to them, peace to you, but they were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. Why are you troubled, he asked them, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you can see I have. Having said this, he showed them his hands and feet, but while they were still amazed and in disbelief because of their joy, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate it in their presence. And so the, the group's debating, is Jesus alive or not? And then all of a sudden he's in their presence, standing amongst them. They can see him with their eyes and yet they're going, I don't know. Like you, you are, you're supposed to be dead. Dead people don't come back to life. Is this a ghost? Are we seeing things right now? They're doubting. Like the, the text here kind of says they're doubting whether Jesus is actually alive. Now, if, if you're a Christian and another Christian ever comes to you and says, I'm experiencing um, some doubts in my faith, I'm, I'm struggling in my faith with doubt, I'm, I'm going to ask you, please don't do this. Please don't say to them, just have faith. Like, uh, is that helpful? That's like saying to a drowning person, stop drowning oh, thank you, okay, I will, I just needed to hear, like, just have faith isn't overly helpful. It's not what people need to hear or what they want to hear. So we can learn something from how Jesus engages those who are struggling with doubt. Jesus says, when in doubt, examine the evidence. He says to look at, to touch the evidence, his hands, his feet. He's saying, see the scars that were left from the nails. Now, Jesus' body had gone through a brutal ordeal on the cross. That, that, that he was he was whipped before he went to the cross, that on the cross nails were driven through his hands, a crown of thorn on his head, that a spear was driven into his side. But from the text, it, it kind of seems like that for the most part, Jesus' body is is recovered, except there's some scars left. There's, there's scars from the nails in his hands and his feet. And another gospel say there's a scar from the, uh, the, the spear that went into his side. And the question is why? Why does Jesus seemingly choose to keep these scars? Why doesn't like while he's fixing everything else up, have those healed? Like I, I've heard stories where parents, um, their young child has a fish and they'll, they'll be walking by and they notice that Goldie's doing the back float. That like Goldie has passed away. And, and, and before their kid notices, they're hoping to spare the kids like a brutal life lesson at a young age. They go out, they buy another goldfish, they pop it into the tank and hope that the kid won't notice. But the kid will be looking at the tank and they'll go like, Goldie looks different. Goldie doesn't seem to be the same. And they can tell by the markings whether it's the same fish or not. Like Jesus' scars, I believe they're there to help confirm his identity. God did not send a replacement Jesus to kind of make the disciples feel a little little bit better. This is not somebody impersonating Jesus, that he bears the scars. The Jesus who died on the cross is the Jesus who rose again. In Acts chapter 1, verse 3, Luke writes this, After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And so Luke's going, for 40 days, Jesus is, is making appearances to his disciples. He's giving them convincing proofs that he is alive. Like, it's, it's not this celebrity appearance where Jesus paid just to stop in, one and done. He's out of there. Like, it's over and over. He's, he's appearing to the disciples. And so often people say that, that, that faith is blind belief. The faith in the New Testament wasn't blind belief. It was responding to Evidence. It was based on evidence that faith is a confident trust in what we have good reason to believe. Now, I, I think, again, as Christians, we'll do well to admit this, that a lot of the things that we, we claim to believe are hard to believe on initial hearing. Now, searching for reasons to believe something, Jesus doesn't frown upon that. That Jesus himself is going to examine the evidence, and he's not afraid of what you might discover when you examine the evidence. There's that line in The Wizard of Oz where the guy's like, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Jesus isn't afraid of us taking a look and seeing what we'll find. Now, seasons of doubt, they're not fun. And sometimes as a Christian, you might feel some shame and guilt when you wrestle with doubt. But here's what I would say is, doubt can be the beginning of a stronger walk with God. Doubt can be the beginning of a stronger walk with God. It's not a sin to doubt. It doesn't mean that you don't have faith. Like we we will often hear a skeptic say this. I don't believe in God. I believe in science. And you might see that in a comment section where it's like some religious belief is kind of getting dumped on. Now, I would say, like, well, most Christians would actually agree. Like, we believe in science as well. We're, we're not against it. But a true believer in science will not be afraid to examine the evidence and follow where it leads and believe what it points to. And as Christians, I, like, sometimes we can be opposed to science, like I've, I've seen some Christians demonize science and go, ah, it's of the devil, pay no attention to it. But, but we shouldn't be opposed to it. It was actually out of the Christian worldview that science could be born, that, 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 that the study of everything could kind of be born because Christians were going, no, there's a God. He's a God of order. He's a God of intelligence. And, and we can know, we can trust what's there. So that's how kind of science was born. And I've said it before, but it's like, we shouldn't be afraid of science because like science and archaeology, they just kind of keep catching up to what the Bible teaches. Now, as Christians, if we believe that our faith is true, we shouldn't be afraid to examine what we espouse to believe to see if it holds up. Paul or Chris Price and Paul Chamberlain, they, they write, an unexamined faith is not worth trusting. And I've been been doing this for quite a few years. I've been in the church my entire life and I've seen my fair share of people walk away from the Christian faith. But but here's what I would say. A lot of the time, it's not this, that people encountered a hard question and that there aren't good answers. What it often is this, is that people encountered a hard question and then they were lazy. They wouldn't go looking for answers. They, They just kind of were like, eh, whatever. Or, again, we, we got to make sure we don't do this, that when people come to us with doubt, that we don't just go, ah, just have faith. Pray a little more. Like, we, we've got to guide them towards good answers. And there are answers. Now, if we're, not, if we're not careful, that initial doubt, that can transition towards sin, towards the sin of unbelief. And the sin of unbelief is a choice to remain in doubt and skepticism rather than to seek the truth with an open heart and mind. It's being afraid to open our mind because we're afraid that we might find something that requires us to change. Like C.S. Lewis, he said, Christianity is a statement which, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. He's like, it's either true or it's not. If it's not true, don't waste your time with it, essentially is what Lewis is saying. And so we can't touch the hands and the feet of Jesus. We can't can't see them with our eyes to examine that evidence, but there's still evidence to be examined. The field of apologetics, um, it offers so much evidence. And if, if you're like sitting here, you're going like, I am the doubter. I am struggling in this. I would be more than happy to, to talk with you about that. I'd be more than happy to point you to some resources, some authors, uh, people that I found helpful in my own faith walk. And I'll just say this, my, my relationship with Jesus, my faith in Christianity has only gotten stronger as I engaged with those doubts that I had. And the truth is many of the things that, that we wrestle with are doubts, with some research and some reasoning, we can actually find that they can be addressed, that they're not such a big question as we may have thought. All right, let's keep going. Luke chapter 24, verse 44 and following. Jesus told them, "'These are my words that I spoke to you "'while I was still with you, "'that everything written about me in the law of Moses, "'the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. "'Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. "'He also said to them, "'This is what is written. "'The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead "'the third day.'" And repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are are witnesses of these things. And look, I am sending you what my father promised. As for you, stay in the city until you are empowered from on high. Then he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was carried up into heaven. Now when we look at the Old Testament scriptures... What, what we can see is that Jesus doesn't end up on the cross accidentally. Like Jesus isn't hanging on the cross and God goes, oh, did not see that coming. Like that, it doesn't catch him by surprise that, that we can see from the scriptures, I mean, this, this was part of the plan of God for the salvation of humanity. But what we can often do is think of God's plan of salvation it, it, that it, it kind of stops at the resurrection. But verse 47 is going, no, there's there's another part after the resurrection, that repentance and forgiveness of sin will be preached in the name of Jesus to all the nations. And so what, Luke doesn't kind of include the the Great Commission in the same way that Matthew has it, where it's like, go out into all the world and and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Luke doesn't have that, but in what he's saying here, you, you kind of see it there. And he's saying, you're going to proclaim the name of Jesus to all the nations. And when people hear about what Jesus has done, they have to decide, what are they going to do with the news of Jesus' death and his resurrection and what that means? Do they believe that Jesus' death atoned for sin, that he was, he was the sacrifice, that he took their place Do they believe that his resurrection proves that sin has been conquered, death has been conquered, that eternal life is possible? And then it would go on to say, it's like, if they believe this, if they repent of their sins, that that eternal life is possible. Now, here's the thing. If you want to talk about that, we're not going to charge you for it. Um, That often it's like, if somebody's saying like, I've got secret knowledge, pay me and I'll give it to you. It's a cult. Um, Whereas Christianity is going like, here's everything we know, free of charge because it's been freely given to us. And so we would love to talk to you about that. But Jesus' disciples were to be his witnesses proclaiming the name of Jesus to the nations, that he's going you're, you're going to make him known. And so this is what we believe is our job here at HCC as well. And this is why our mission statement is this, is to know Jesus and to make him known that we, we want to know him in relationship. We don't want to just treat Jesus like this name that we tack onto our lives. Oh, it's my, my hell insurance. No, he wants re- relationship with us. But he's also given us a mission that we see here clearly that we are to make him known. We're to make disciples. We're to help other people know him in that type of relationship. And we believe this is important that people know Jesus through this relationship. That, that's essential. Why? Well, it's because what Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 6. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so what Jesus is saying here is that what somebody believes of him is of eternal significance. And I I know this this claim of exclusivity. Jesus is the only way to God the Father. Jesus is the only way to heaven. That rubs some of us wrong. and We go, ah, how can that, that, that be the only way? Well, I would say like, take Jesus' advice, examine the evidence, see, see whether it points up. When we try and like actually take all the religions, group them all together and say, they all go to the same place, that's actually more offensive than it is saying there's exclusive ways. Cause you're saying, you're, you're all the same. There's no difference. Now, Tim Keller, he, he wrote this. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Like he's going, that's that's almost, like if this guy has conquered death, I think you better listen up, is what Tim Keller is saying. And if you are convinced that Jesus is the truth, then it means that everything that Jesus said is true. That his his statements about reality are correct. His observations and insights on the human condition, they're correct, that his predictions, his promises, they are worth building your life on, that his teachings and his commands, that they must be followed. And Jesus gives his disciples this mission, make me known, make disciples. Now put yourself in the disciples' shoes for a moment. Your rabbi is back from the dead. Over 40 days, he keeps appearing to you. And he's it's like, you're absolutely convinced that he's alive. And, and, and he's, he's talking about the kingdom of God and how things are gonna be when he's king. And you're going, okay, I mean, you were dead and you're alive. What's gonna stop this plan? Like, who are you going all in with? I'm going with the guy who was dead and is alive. Like, I'm gonna throw in my towel with that guy. And you're like, let's make this happen. And then Jesus leads you out into the countryside after 40 days, and you're going like, are we, are we having a nice picnic, a little getaway before we make this happen? And he's talking, and he just starts ascending into the sky until you can't see him anymore. Like Luke gives more detail about what, what took place in Acts chapter one, verses nine to 11. He says, Jesus was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight, While he was going, they were gazing into heaven and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you've seen him going into heaven. So the disciples, like they're so focused on Jesus going into the sky that they don't notice off to the side that there's two angels there. Like, they just completely miss this. The angels have to get their attention and essentially they say, guys, it's time for you to go home. Like, don't stay here. Go home. And I don't think the disciples were necessarily expecting this. Like, imagine the questions that the disciples are going to have in this moment. Why did Jesus have to go? Where, where is Jesus? Has, has, he, has he abandoned us? Like, wouldn't... This mission that he'd given them to, to, to make his name known would be a lot easier if Jesus were still around. Like, if he had stayed here, I think it would be so much easier. It would improve the odds of success. Like, we, we, could, we could just kind of be like, Jesus is alive. He's conquered death. And somebody would go, I don't know if I believe you. It's like, that's cool. But he's in Jerusalem on his throne, actually check out the live feed. We can see it here. Like it it wouldn't be, witnessing would be so much easier. Evangelism, it wouldn't be such a struggle. If Jesus had stayed, he could answer all of our questions. I mean, we could bring our biggest, hardest ones. He'd answer them. He could address our doubts. He could resolve disputes over over doctrine and church policy. It's like, who's right? Who's got this right? Who understands it? Jesus could be like, here's how it is we'd realize we're probably all wrong. Um, But with the power that Jesus has, he could impose order on all the violence and the evil that we see in the world. He could address poverty so easily. But Jesus didn't stay. He ascended into heaven, leaving his disciples with this mission to change the world. And we go, why did he go? In John chapter 16, verse 28, Jesus says, I came from the Father, and have come into the world. Again, I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Have you ever missed home? Like I, I know there's a lot of people here that call HCC their, their home church, but but you're going like uh, home is 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 back in a different country, and it's like you, you miss it, or maybe you've just been traveling and and you just miss your bed, or it's it's, it's often not just the place, but it's the people that we miss. I remember during the lockdowns in 2020 where they're like, you can't leave anywhere. You just stay where you are. You couldn't travel between provinces. Man, there were so many times where I just like wanted to get into the car, drive to PEI and see my family. And I think we might like dismiss this as insignificant, but I think Jesus missed home. That for 33 years, he'd been away from his father, missing the intimacy that he would experienced with God the Father from before time began. And I can imagine that he, he missed him. Now, all along, Jesus, he knew that his time on earth was temporary. And now that his work on earth was done, he's ready to go home to his heavenly father. And again, we might go, I, I don't know. That's, that's a little small. But if God is everything that Jesus made him out to be, wouldn't you want to be with him? Isn't there a part of you that, that, that aches for the goodness of heaven and the promises of God, isn't relationship with God like it's intended to be and we long for the end goal of the Christian faith to get us back into relationship and community with him? In John chapter 17, verses four and five, Jesus says, I've glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And so Jesus had finished his work on earth and he he ascends into heaven. I want to ask, what do you envision Jesus is doing in heaven? Is he like sleeping in? Is he retired? Takes up a few hobbies, improves his golf score. Like like, what what is Jesus up to? Well, scripture would say Jesus hasn't retired, but he's at work in heaven. Maybe you've watched one of those court, um, dramas, or legal dramas, or maybe you've experienced it yourself. Um, but there's legal trouble, and what's the advice? You better get yourself a lawyer. And the advice is get yourself the best one you can afford, because the better the lawyer, the better your chances at success. Now, maybe like I, I've heard of sometimes where somebody's like, "I'm going to represent myself," and I'm like, unless you're a lawyer, that's a terrible idea. Like that's not going to end well. You're, you're probably not going to win the case. The better the lawyer, the odds your your success at or the better your chances at success as, as, as being exonerated or winning the case. And if you were to stand before God, how are you going to plead your case that you deserve eternal life? That you aren't guilty? That you deserve eternal life? What are you going to appeal to? You're going to be like, look at my exemplary behavior. Look at my good deeds. It's like compared to some other people, we can look awesome. But when you compare yourself against the standard, which is the holiness of God, it's not that awesome. It's not impressive. In Romans chapter 8, verse 31 and following, Paul writes, what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? And Paul is saying that Jesus is still at work for your salvation, but he's working for your salvation in heaven, interceding for you. And you go, what, what, what does this mean? It's like this. Satan is called the accuser in scripture. Again, you might go, Satan, you believe that? Yes, we do. Um, and he can come before God and he can point out your sins. And he can point out all your failures. And Jesus goes, yes, that's all true. But then he holds out his hands, leans to his left, and he says, but that has been paid for. That Jesus is in heaven right now interceding for you. He's pleading your case. He's at the right hand of God interceding for us. And please understand, when, when Jesus ascended, he did not abandon us. The ascension gives us a confidence that we have a friend in heaven. It gives us the confidence to know that he's there preparing a place for us. Now, I have, a, I have a mustache guard mug, and you're like, what is that? Well, it's a teacup or a mug that has this little thing in it so that when you drink your tea or coffee, that your mustache does not get into your tea or coffee. Um, it was handed down to me from, my, I think it was my great grandfathers or great-great-grandfathers kind of come down through the years. We also have a spinning wheel in our home that belonged to somebody. And, and these things kind of get passed down generation to generation. And, and we cherish these things and they, it helps us remind of, uh, or remember those who came before us. Now, to be honest, I've never drank out of that mustache garden mug because like every time I kind of look at it, it's like, it's a little morbid. It's like, this belonged to somebody who's dead. Um, I don't know, it's, maybe it's just me. Um, but I look at it, I'm like, I'm just reminded of people who came before me, but are no longer here. Now Jesus, he didn't leave behind something. He didn't leave behind a lot of items that we could put into a museum like we do with a lot of um, historical figures. And again, we go look at these things like, this is a person that was once here, but no longer is. We, we, it just reminds us that, that, that they're dead. Jesus didn't really do that. He didn't leave behind something. He gave us someone And Jesus tells the disciples, stay in Jerusalem until you're empowered from on high. And he's speaking of the Holy Spirit, who is a gift given to every Christian or every person who believes in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so we don't have Jesus with us anymore, but we have the Holy Spirit, his spirit in us, present with us everywhere we go, that we have been empowered by God to make this mission happen, to take his name to the ends of the earth, that we've been given what we need to make disciples The Holy Spirit, he's not a thing, he's a person. He's alive and he's active and the greatest evidence that might convince a world that Christianity is true is seeing the Holy Spirit at work in you, transforming your character over time as you witness and testify to Jesus. Now a final reason that Jesus might have returned to heaven is so that we would actually be his witnesses today. Back in 2017, uh, my wife, Shannon, she won a trip down to L.A. to go to the Lego Ninjago movie premiere. She won it through Indigo or something. And uh, we, we flew, flew down to L.A. We were staying there. And uh, my wife, uh, my son, Seth, and I, we were outside the premiere waiting to go into the theater to see the movie. And we, we couldn't get in. And the stars uh, who were voicing the, the characters... Um, were appearing or showing up to walk the carpet. And so Olivia Munn um, pulls up in her, her fancy car right in front of where we're standing and she, she gets out. And when everybody saw that, like, it was like the whole crowd just kind of went and like, just right towards Olivia. And we were kind of like getting pushed out into the street because of where we were. And, and there's grown men going like, Olivia, Olivia, trying to get her attention. I'm like, guys, you kind of look pathetic. She's not gonna be impressed uh, by that. But, but they were all focused on her trying to get her attention. And if Jesus were still here, the church likely would not have dispersed. The celebrity of Jesus might have been too much for the mission. Like, I mean, think about it. Like, I'd wanna go to the church where Jesus is preaching every Sunday. I said in the first service, like, don't listen to Greg and I, if Jesus is here, like, go see see this guy. Like, if you're in Jesus' church, aren't you gonna try and get into his life group? Like, think of the truths he's gonna drop week after week. And the church would have likely stayed gathered, huddled around Jesus, and the good news of forgiveness of sin would not have actually gone out. And So Jesus in his wisdom gave his disciples the mission to make him known until he comes again. And that is our mission as well. And so while Jesus is in heaven representing us, we're to be here representing him. And so we could spend whatever time we have staring up into the sky, waiting for Jesus to come again or for us to go to him. Or we could seize these days, take hold of the gospel, and do everything we can to make him known. With God's spirit empowering us, this mission is possible. The fact that Jesus left means he doesn't doubt it.